Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Animals kill for need. Humans kill for pleasure. As most of us know, because they don't always look like creeps or monsters, serial rapists and killers have an ability to blend in. They're often intelligent and can seem to live normal lives. Ted Bundy was a handsome law student working side by side with a Seattle police officer in a suicide hotline clinic. Dennis Rader, BTK, was married with children former Air Force, and a leader in his community church. Robert Lee Yates was married with children and an officer and helicopter pilot in the United States Army. Maury Travis was a charming waiter in an upscale restaurant. And the list goes on. In this episode, our killer works at the 84 Lumber Company, a lumber yard for building materials. Think about it. You want to repair a fence or have some other project you're working on and you need some wood. You go to your local lumber store to get the supplies you need. There's no way you could know that the friendly guy helping you select your wood is a serial rapist or killer. He just seems so kind and helpful, maybe even charming. This story takes place in San Luis Obispo, which is part of the Southern California region, also known as SoCal. The SoCal region also includes Los Angeles, Orange, Santa Barbara, and several other counties. San Luis Obispo is often referred to by the locals as Slow or SloCal. San Luis Obispo is known for its lively downtown, historic Spanish mission, museums and art galleries, great eateries, and wine and craft beer tasting rooms. San Luis Obispo seems to have something for everyone and is dubbed the happiest place in America. Not so happy for those involved in this story. Rachel Newhouse was 20 years old and a junior at California Polytechnic State University, also known as Cal Poly, in Irvine, California. The last time she was seen alive was on November 12, 1998, at about 11.30 p.m., where she and her roommate were attending a get-together at the Tortilla Flats restaurant and bar in San Luis Obispo. Tortilla Flats was a popular restaurant and bar among locals and college students. Sometime between 11.30 p.m. and midnight, Rachel left the restaurant on foot and was never seen again. Other than some blood drops on a bridge which matched Rachel, there were no leads and the investigation into her disappearance stalled pretty quickly. Law enforcement established a reward to try to generate some new leads, but there were no results. On November 19, 1998, San Luis Obispo Police Department reached out to the FBI for assistance on the case, but they were having no success either. Four months after Rachel went missing, on March 11, 1999, Andrea Crawford disappeared. Like Rachel, she was 20 years old 
She was a student too, but Andrea was attending Cuesta College in San Luis Obispo. Unlike Rachel, Andrea went missing from her apartment. She was in for the night and was actually on the phone with a friend until 2.46 a.m. that morning. When she missed an appointment the next day and was not responding to texts, an investigation into her disappearance began, but authorities had no luck finding her. I believe there's a true hero in this tragic story, David Zaragoza, a parole officer. Parole officers sometimes get a bad rap and they often have huge caseloads making it difficult for them to stay on top of the parolees they're monitoring. But Zaragoza obviously took his job very seriously. He was detail-oriented, had a great memory, and was a man of action. Zaragoza was aware of Andrea Crawford's disappearance from reading an article in the newspaper. Red flags went up for him when he thought he recognized similarities between that case and the prior crimes of one of his parolees. Despite Zaragoza's huge caseload, one parolee in particular stood out in his memory. He remembered this rapist and ex-con's violent behavior in two previous rapes and from 12 years earlier. This parolee was Rex Allen Krebs, and he has quite the dark and disturbing history. Rex Allen Krebs was born in Sandpoint, Idaho on January 28, 1966. The abuse inflicted on Krebs as a child began the year he was born. His father, Alan Krebs, literally tossed him over the roof of a car. Fortunately, his mother caught him. When Krebs was only four years old, his father's sister was violently murdered, and his father, Alan, began to drink even more than he already did. And he became even more abusive than he already was. A year later, at the age of five, Krebs's parents, Alan and Connie, get a divorce. Connie remarried to a guy named Bob. Sadly, Bob is an alcoholic and just as abusive to Krebs as his father, Alan. Maybe even more so. Bob begins to verbally and physically abuse Krebs, calling him names like Little Bastard, and would beat him for defecating in his pants. Then he would force Krebs to wear soiled diapers on his head and diapers to school. Three years later, Krebs is eight years old. His father, Alan, who's been out of the picture for a while, finds the family and actually kidnaps Krebs for a short period. When Bob confronts Alan with a gun, Alan dares Bob to shoot while holding little eight-year-old Krebs up in front of him as a shield. Bob continued to violently beat and abuse both Krebs and his mother, Connie. Connie did nothing to protect Krebs and was a hardcore alcoholic herself. Connie and Bob would often go drinking, leaving Krebs and his younger siblings in the car while they drank at the bar. Krebs would then have to drive Bob and Connie home despite the fact that he was no more than 10 years old. While Krebs was 10 years old, Connie decided it would be better if Krebs went to live with his father, Alan, since, according to her, Krebs and Bob did not get along. Well, that's a gross understatement. But, as would be expected, life was no better with Alan, and the violent abuse continues. At the age of 12, Krebs begins to act out in school and getting into trouble with his teachers. Despite showing up to school with bruises all over his face and body from Alan's abuse, 
the school did nothing to help him and described him as attention-craved. Maybe he was. Maybe he needed someone to pay attention and save him. At 13, Krebs broke into a neighbor's home while they were out, but when they came back a short time later, they found him in the daughter's closet masturbating. It was this incident that got Krebs ordered by the court to seek psychological treatment. Unfortunately, his father only allowed him one visit, but it was enough to determine that Krebs was already exhibiting signs of antisocial personality disorder. By the time Krebs is 14, he's making random, obscene sexual phone calls to female neighbors. Apparently, he accidentally calls his own aunt, and she tells his father. His father, in turn, proceeds to beat him severely. Just a side note, anyone who has ever gotten one of these crank calls knows how creepy and unsettling they can be. When Krebs turned 15, he ran away from home after being badly beaten again by his father. While he is on the run, he breaks into another home, steals a bunch of miscellaneous items which he later dumps along the side of the road. At some point, Krebs winds up in the hospital with head injuries which he says were the result of falling off the back of a truck. Doctors actually suspect abuse and ask Krebs about this, but he denies it. It's not long before he runs away from home again. This time while on the run, he actually derailed a train just for fun. Obviously, this kid is messed up. Fortunately, no one was killed, but the conductor was injured. He does get picked up, but runs away yet again just one week later. His father, Alan, the one who has been abusing him all his life, has him committed to a state hospital for treatment, claiming that he can no longer handle Krebs. I guess all the violent beatings and humiliation weren't working. As a result, Krebs is then placed in the North Idaho Children's Home for Troubled Boys and actually begins to show improvement. In one report by the home, Krebs is labeled having poor impulse control, not truthful, and suffers from substance abuse. Despite the report, he apparently continues to make progress and surprisingly receives what they call a Gentleman of the Month Award. Unfortunately, at the age of 17, Krebs is released from the home and sent back to live with his father, and the abuse continues. This is simply a history of Krebs's life and by no means an excuse for his behavior. Krebs commits his first crime as an adult at the age of 18. The year is 1984, and he befriends and later attacks a young 12-year-old girl. The young girl testified that one night in February, she was hanging out with a couple of friends and her new acquaintance, Krebs. Krebs had offered her some vodka in an attempt to get her drunk. At some point in the evening, the other two friends left, leaving her alone with Krebs. Krebs pulled her off to one side and tried to kiss her. She resisted, saying, No, I'm only 12. When she tried to walk away, Krebs grabbed her, punched her, and hit her head against the ground and started to strangle her. Krebs then attempted to undo his pants and her pants. The young girl fought to get Krebs off of her. In the midst of this struggle, the two rolled over an embankment and she was able to get away. Krebs was arrested and charged, but was allowed to plead out to a lesser charge 
so the young girl would not have to testify. But as a result, Krebs got off with a misdemeanor assault and spent only three months in jail. Upon being released, Krebs is again arrested, this time for Grand Theft Auto, and spends three years in jail. Sadly, Krebs spends more time in jail for stealing a car than the attempted rape of a young girl. In 1987, at the age of 21, Krebs moved back to California and moved in with his mother and her fourth husband. He actually meets a 17-year-old girl and they get engaged. They begin living together in his mother's garage. But when she finds out about his past, she breaks off the engagement and moves out. That same year, on May 24, 1987, a young woman who I will refer to as SC came out of a restaurant and walked past Krebs, who tried to get her attention. She basically ignored him, and that really pissed him off. Angry, he followed her home in his Volkswagen. SC is a 21-year-old divorced mother with children. She was alone this night. It was late, and she came home to an empty house. She had left her kids with the babysitter, and her roommate wouldn't be back until 6 a.m. Krebs waited in his car for 45 minutes for SC to go to bed. Once he saw the lights go off, he broke into her home. She was startled awake by Krebs's hand clamped down across her mouth. She stated that he smelled strongly of alcohol and cigarettes, and she felt the blade of a knife pressed against her throat. Krebs took the knife and cut her sweats off. He also bound her with nylon rope and hogtied her. Krebs was clearly into bondage and liked to tie his victims up with intricate knots, such as truck hitches. A truck hitch knot is a compound knot using loops and turns in the rope itself. It's commonly used for securing loads on trucks or trailers. Once he had her bound to his satisfaction, he raped and anally sodomized her. When he suddenly heard the muffler of her roommate's car coming to the location, he left. Just before he left, he took one last parting shot. Krebs leaned over next to SC and said, Have a nice day. Three weeks later, Krebs struck again. On June 15, 1987, Krebs attacked his third known victim. I will refer to her as AC. He first spotted AC when he was installing a garage door in the neighborhood and began stalking her. He even approached AC asking if she would like to have her garage door repaired and gave her a business card. The business card had four names on it and he made sure to circle his, Rex Krebs. As they were talking, he was able to learn that AC lived alone with her seven-year-old daughter. The attack took place very early in the morning. Krebs broke into her house by forcing her garage door open. Then he cut the phone lines both inside and outside the house. AC actually heard him breaking in and tried to call the police, but the phone was dead. At this point, she locked herself and her daughter in the bedroom. This didn't stop Krebs, though. He kicked the bedroom door in and began his assault by threatening AC with a knife. Because the young woman's daughter was crying and screaming, she asked Krebs if he would take her to another room. While they were walking down the hall, Krebs told her to stop, that he wanted to tie her up. Krebs then got really upset when AC wouldn't cooperate and began to fight with him. As a result, he repeatedly hit her head against the wall at least three times. Despite having her head slammed into the wall, 
A.C. managed to fight Krebs off, but she suffered a number of severe lacerations to her right hand and arm in the process. As the struggle continued, Krebs pulled a clump of her hair from her head and attempted to stab her. A.C. tried to stop him by grabbing his knife and refused to let go. In fact, she even tried to stab him with his own knife, but was unsuccessful. Enraged, Krebs grabbed her wrist, pulling A.C.'s hand to his mouth and bit her finger. Court records show that Krebs bit her so hard, he severed a tendon in her hand and left her disabled. With her hand bleeding, she began screaming and dropped the knife. A.C. was so panicked and terrified that she bolted for the front door. She pulled it open with so much force that it left an impression on the wall. As A.C. was running out the front door, Krebs was running out the back slider into the backyard and managed to escape. Thankfully, Krebs was apprehended in a matter of days, charged and convicted for both the rape in May of S.C. and the attempted rape in June of A.C. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Regrettably, he was released in September of 1997 after serving only 10 years, just half of his 20-year sentence due to good behavior and overcrowding in the prison. After 10 years in prison, Krebs is 31 years old. Upon his release, between 1997 and 1998, Krebs is forced to move continuously as people find out about his past. But he eventually finds a place to live on a remote property on Davis Canyon Road in San Luis Obispo. He also finds a job working at the 84 Lumber Company, a local lumber store. Before long, he meets a young woman named Roz, who becomes his longtime girlfriend, and they later have a child together. In 1998, at the age of 32, Krebs is involved in a bar fight and is hospitalized. He remains unconscious for several days, and afterwards, his friends say he begins acting strange. Seems to me he's been acting strange for quite some time. Shortly after Krebs moved to San Luis Obispo, Rachel Newhouse goes missing on November 12, 1998, and four months later, Andrea Crawford goes missing on March 11, 1999. After reading about the disappearance of Andrea Crawford, David Zaragoza, our parole officer extraordinaire, cannot ignore his feelings that something isn't right and that Rex Allen Krebs may be involved. Zaragoza decides to pay his parolee a visit. It was about a week after Andrea went missing that Zaragoza showed up at Krebs's residence. When Krebs came outside to meet Zaragoza, he was walking as if he was in pain and holding his rib area. Krebs told Zaragoza that he had hurt his ribs when he fell off a wall into some firewood. But Zaragoza was suspicious because he didn't see any injuries to Krebs's hands or arms. I think that's a pretty good observation. After Zaragoza left, he immediately reported his suspicions to the lead investigator of the Andrea Crawford investigation. Two days later, Zaragoza returned with other parole officers and conducted a parole search of Krebs' residence. Under California law, a parole officer can search a parolee's residence without a warrant if he suspects that there's a violation of parole. 
Among the items they found and seized were an eight ball keychain and some 22 caliber pellets. One of the conditions of Krebs's parole was that he was not allowed to possess firearms or any other objects resembling a firearm. The next day, they went to where Krebs worked at the 84 Lumber Company, and here they found a 22 caliber pellet gun which looked like a 45 caliber automatic. Krebs was immediately arrested for parole violation and transported to the Slow County Jail. The day after his arrest, Larry Hobson, an investigator with the Slow County District Attorney's Office, interviewed Krebs. So far, Krebs has only been arrested for violating his parole. The charges included possession of assimilated firearm and drinking alcohol. When Hobson asked Krebs if he knew why he was being interviewed, Krebs said he figured it was related to the two women who had recently disappeared since he was on parole for rape and had a prior sex offense. I think that's a pretty big leap from parole violation to two missing women, unless you're guilty. When Hobson asked Krebs where he was on the night that Rachel Newhouse disappeared, Krebs said he couldn't remember. But when they asked him about his whereabouts on the night Andrea Crawford disappeared, he stated that he was home all night. He also claimed that the next morning around 8 a.m., he walked to a nearby woodpile and his landlord's daughter, Deborah Wright, stopped and chatted with him briefly. Krebs stated that he slipped on some lattice work and had fallen into a woodpile, injuring his ribs. This is the injury that his parole officer, Zaragoza, noticed. Hobson then asked Krebs where he had gotten the eight ball keychain that was found when Zaragoza and other parole officers searched his home. He said he had found it on the yard in Soledad prison in 1996. Before ending the interview, Hobson explained to Krebs that he might have to question him again, and Krebs said no problem. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to prove that he had nothing to do with the two missing girls, and he even gave his permission to have his vehicle and residence searched. Just a few days later, authorities did a search of Krebs's truck and found duct tape, binoculars, and a bottle of stain remover. They also discovered that some of the carpet had been cut out and one of the jump seats was missing. It was now early April and about two weeks after Krebs was arrested that Hobson interviewed him a second time. During this interview, Krebs's account of events was slightly different than in his original interview. This time, he actually admitted to driving down Andrea's street two or three times. And when Hobson told Krebs that the eight-ball keychain he claimed to have found in prison in 1996 was not even manufactured until 1998, he said, that's strange. Five days after this second interview, authorities searched Krebs' home and found the jump seat from his truck. The jump seat was stained with blood. On April 21st, Hobson interviewed Krebs for a third time. In this interview, Krebs had more difficulty remembering what he did on March 11th, the day Andrea went missing. Hobson then asked Krebs about his previous sex crimes, and Krebs admitted that he fantasized about abducting women, but stated that he had, quote, worked through that. It was then that Hobson pulled out the eight ball keychain and showed it to Krebs. 
he told Krebs that they knew it belonged to Andrea. Hobson also told Krebs that they found the jump seat to his truck and it had traces of Rachel's blood on it. This is when Krebs stopped talking. He told Hobson that he was done talking and didn't want to help them at this time. So Hobson had no choice but to return him to his cell. The very next day, April 22nd, Hobson returned to the jail and had Krebs brought up from his cell for further questioning. Krebs asked Hobson what he wanted him to say, and Hobson simply replied, the truth. Surprisingly, Krebs agreed. Hobson then asked Krebs if he was responsible for the disappearance and death of both Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford, and Krebs responded, yes. With this admission, Krebs was taken to a formal interview room where his interrogation was videotaped. During this interview, Krebs gave a full confession and described what he had done to the victims. With only some minor modifications made by me, this is the summarized version of the confession made by Rex Allen Krebs to Detective Larry Hobson. Attorneys took the original confession transcripts and summarized them for use in his California Supreme Court of Appeals opinion. I have also included the additional information around the exhumations, autopsies, and additional evidence used in that appeals document. Quote, Krebs stated that starting at about 8.30 p.m. on November 12, 1998, he drank six or seven shots of whiskey. At about midnight, he saw Rachel Newhouse walking down a street in San Luis Obispo. He told Hobson he had a premonition that Rachel would walk across a bridge, so he parked his truck and walked onto the bridge. As Rachel walked behind him on the bridge, Krebs turned around and hit her on the jaw with his fist. When I read this, I was a little shocked. I, I try to be aware of who's behind me, but I hadn't thought about someone in front of me turning around to attack like this. He must have caught Rachel completely off guard. When she screamed, Krebs picked her up and threw her down on her back. Then he hit her again, knocking her unconscious and dragging her by the hair down the stairs. At this point, she was bleeding from the back of her head and about her face. When he reached his truck, he put the still unconscious Rachel behind the front passenger seat in the area where the jump seats were located. He got rope from the bed of his truck and tied her hands behind her back. He then drove along railroad tracks for about 200 yards where he stopped and used the same rope to tie her legs. Finally, he reached into her pants, ripped off her panties, stuffed them into her mouth, and tied the rope through her mouth. Beside the road that led to Krebs's residence was an abandoned cabin. Krebs drove to the cabin, carried Rachel inside, removed her pants, and raped her. She was conscious by this time and was cursing him. After he raped her, he retied her legs, hogtied her legs to her hands, and stuffed her panties back in her mouth. Then he drove up to his residence, leaving Rachel in the cabin. He returned to the cabin 15 or 20 minutes later and found Rachel dead. He told Hobson that when he left her, the rope he had tied around her neck was not in a position that would have prevented her from breathing. Hobson asked whether Krebs was saying that Rachel's struggling had caused her strangulation. 
Krebs responded. That or her legs relaxed or something, I don't know. Unquote. Just a side note. According to the book, Sex-Related Homicide and Death Investigation, Krebs liked to hogtie his victims. He would bind his victims in an explicit manner using sophisticated knots, which allowed him to maneuver and control his victims' movements. He had an intense interest in bondage, and the bindings he used on his victims involved ligatures being wrapped around their neck, waist, hands, wrists and ankles, and running from the neck down to the feet. Based on the drawings provided in the book, these ligatures are designed in such a way that if the victim attempted to relax their legs or straighten them in the slightest, pressure is placed on the neck and would absolutely prevent them from breathing. Obviously, Krebs knows this. Back to Krebs's confession. Quote, Krebs told Hobson that he panicked, put her body behind the cabin and went home. The next morning, Krebs drove his truck past a spot where he had been cutting wood and dug a grave. He returned home and at some point cleaned blood from his truck. When he was unable to remove all the blood, he cut out portions of the carpet, threw them in a dumpster, and put the stained jump seat in his home. Sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, he put Rachel's body in the back of his truck, drove to where he had dug a grave, and buried it. Turning to the Crawford case, Krebs stated that the first time he saw her, he was driving by her house as she was getting out of her car. He waited and then went to the back of her house, got out of his truck, and looked at her through a small gap at the bottom of the curtains on a window. He left after a few minutes. Over the following days, Krebs twice more returned to Andrea's house to watch her. Each time he was intoxicated. Finally, Krebs returned for a third time, knowing that he was going to abduct her. Again intoxicated, Krebs was not certain what time he went to her house, but it could have been as late as 2 or 3 a.m. Krebs found a small bathroom window that was not latched, removed the screen, and crawled feet first into a shower stall. He heard his ribs going through the window. Krebs told Hobson that he was getting ready to go out the bathroom door. The only thing I'm thinking of is leaving right then when Andrea opened the bathroom door, wearing a t-shirt and underwear. He punched her, knocking her back against the wall, and kept punching her, causing her to lose consciousness. He hogtied her with a rope he had brought with him and put duct tape across her mouth. He went upstairs and got two pillowcases. Although he was wearing pantyhose over his head, he put a pillowcase over Andrea's head and tied it so she couldn't identify him. He put CDs and some of Andrea's clothes in the other pillowcase. He also took a VCR, videotapes of movies, and her keys with the eight ball keychain, which he put in his truck. When Krebs returned to the house, Andrea had regained consciousness and was struggling. He put her in his truck and went back to her house to clean up the blood. Then he drove her to the abandoned cabin, left her on a couch, drove home, and drank more whiskey. As it was starting to get light, he drove to the woodpile to chop some wood so that his landlord's daughter, Deborah Wright, would see him as she went to work. After Wright left, 
Krebs brought Andrea from the cabin to his residence. He removed some of the rope, but he left her hands tied together and kept the pillowcase and duct tape in place. He raped and sodomized Andrea on the bed, tied her feet back together, went to the kitchen for more liquor and coffee, and fell asleep on the couch. When he woke up an hour or so later, he replaced the pillowcase with a bandana blindfold and removed the duct tape. She asked him, why was he doing this? Asked him to stop, pleaded with him to let her go and cried. He didn't say anything to her. He raped her over a coffee table. Leaving her hands tied and her legs untied, he clothed her in a sweatshirt and sweatpants he had brought from her home. He put her back in his bed and went to sleep on the couch. Krebs was awakened by a noise and saw Andrea coming out of the bedroom without the blindfold. He threw her to the floor, strangled her to death with a rope. He moved her body to the bedroom and drank more whiskey. Then he dug a grave in his yard and buried her. Krebs disposed of everything he had taken except the eight ball keychain, a second black sweatshirt, and the CDs. He threw the VCR and videotapes, which were in a garbage bag, near a road and burned everything else. After confessing, Krebs accompanied Hobson and others to his home and to the locations of the graves and the garbage bag that contained the VCR, videotapes, and CDs. The victim's bodies were recovered the day after Krebs confessed. Rachel Newhouse's body was found buried about 30 feet above the road. Andrea Crawford's body was found by Krebs's residence, buried about two feet deep. Dr. George Sturbens, a forensic pathologist, observed the exhumations. He testified that Rachel's body was in an advanced state of decomposition. She had on a shirt that had been cut in half up the back and a bra with shoulder straps pulled down from her shoulders. She had on no other clothing. Two areas of her scalp were more decomposed, indicating that they had been injured, and dried fluid on top of her head was consistent with blood. Dr. Sturbins believed the cause of death was asphyxiation, but decomposition prevented him from determining the specific mechanism by which this occurred. Decomposition also prevented a determination of whether Rachel suffered any trauma to the vaginal area. Andrea's body was not as decomposed as Rachel's body, although the level of decomposition precluded a determination of whether Andrea's vaginal or anal area was bruised. Andrea was wearing a black sweatshirt with the Hard Rock Cafe logo and black sweatpants. A blindfold was made from a bandana covering her eyes and nose. A rope circled her neck two and one half times and was also wrapped around her torso and extremities. Two black flex ties were tied around her wrists and a third flex tie connected them and passed through the rope. There were two lacerations inside her mouth that were consistent with the blow by a fist to the face. There was also an area of bruising on her scalp. Dr. Sturbins concluded that her cause of death was asphyxia by ligature strangulation. On April 23rd, a search of the abandoned cabin close to Krebs's residence disclosed a large blood stain on the pad underneath the cushions of the couch. The next day, another search of Krebs's home led to the discovery of black flex ties 
that matched the flex ties on Andrea's wrists. Searchers also discovered some keys about 48 feet from his home. The keys unlocked the doors to Andrea's house. Analysis of bloodstains and hair at Jennifer Street Bridge and surrounding areas corroborated Krebs's description of his abduction of Rachel. Rodney Andrus, the assistant director at the Attorney General's Laboratory in Fresno, also tested bloodstains from the jump seat and the couch in the cabin. He found that their markers were consistent with Rachel's blood and bloodstains on the bridge. An inspection of Andrea's home further corroborated Krebs' confession. Items that Krebs confessed to taking were indeed missing. The state of the bed also suggested that Andrea had gotten out of bed shortly before she was abducted. Bloodstains matching Andrea's were found in the bathroom. Evidence concerning Andrea's clothes and belongings was consistent with Krebs' confession. Andrea's mother, Leslie Crawford, described one of her daughter's belongings, including an eight-ball keychain and a souvenir sweatshirt with a Hard Rock Cafe logo, which she wore only infrequently. She recalled that her daughter normally wore a t-shirt and panties to bed. A search of Andrea's house failed to find the dark sweat clothes that Andrea's mother reported missing. After the interview on April 22nd, during which Krebs confessed, Hobson interviewed Krebs six more times. Two days after the confession, Hobson interviewed Krebs to review some of the details of the crimes and his interactions with the victims. On April 27th, after driving Krebs to view the area where he abducted Rachel, Hobson conducted a videotaped interview, which was shown to the jury. Krebs told Hobson that Rachel cursed at him, and the more she cursed, the angrier he became. Hobson asked, When you get mad, what do you want to do? Krebs responded, Rape her. He stated that after he raped her, he was no longer angry, and he denied intentionally tying her so tightly that she would strangle herself. In contrast to Rachel, Andrea did not curse at Krebs. He'd placed duct tape over her mouth. When raping Andrea, Krebs was acting out a fantasy that involved sexual pleasure and dominance. Control was part of the fantasy, and he had used plastic restraints on Andrea because they were a better means of control. He also agreed that when he hogtied her, he was hoping that she would die like Rachel so he would not have to kill her himself. But when she broke a thin rope he had put around her feet, he pulled on both sides of the rope around her neck and strangled her. He said that if Andrea had not struggled, he would have released her that night. With respect to Krebs' assertion that he had planned to release both of the victims, Hobson asked how he planned to avoid being identified as the perpetrator given that he had not used a condom. Krebs stated that he planned to wash them in the bathtub at his home and use a bottle to wash out his semen. By the time Krebs abducted Andrea, he said his fantasies always involved tying his victims up and cutting their clothes off. Torture had never been a part of his fantasy, which involved only dominance and the ability to have sex repeatedly. Because there was so much media coverage on the murders of Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford, the trial was moved to Monterey County. Despite the fact that he did confess to both murders, Krebs still pleaded not guilty. 
The trial for the murders of Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford ended on April 2, 2001. Rex Allen Krebs was found guilty of first-degree murder for both Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford and sentenced to death. He is still sitting on death row in San Quentin prison with no execution date. The prosecutor in his closing statement said, quote, You now realize what so many of us have realized for a long time. You realize now you have been in the presence of one of the most cruel, calculating, and brutal individuals on the planet, Rex Allen Krebs. Unquote. Thanks again for tuning in to Crime Happened. All episodes are researched, written, recorded, and audio mixed by me. Crime Happens is available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Apple, and other podcast platforms. Please follow or subscribe wherever you listen. Check out my website at crimehappens.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at crime underscore happens. I'll be back very soon with an all new episode. Until then... I wish you well.